Today, we're talking to Joe Wadlington of Twitter about etiquette, his time as a drag queen, and how a carrot kickstarted his career. We're being reminded of the importance of storytelling and marketing, and we're finding out what you wanted to be when you grew up. I'm Zachary Ballinger, and this is The Tick. All right. Today I have with me Joe Wadlington of Twitter. Joe, it is great to have you here. Hi, Zachary. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, you have one of the most fun journeys to to where you got that involves a lot of different cities and a lot of different uh, career path choices. <laughs> um, the most interesting Twitter timeline I've seen of any of our guests, and I I'm, highly recommend people check it out. Um, but my, the question I like to lead with is where are you from and where are you now? So I am from the Appalachian mountains in Tennessee. Um, and I grew up steeped in storytelling culture. So I'm a writer. I've been a writer my entire life. And that came from going to church three times a week and sitting on a whole lot of porches, listening to people lie, um, about <laughs> what they were up to earlier that afternoon. I majored in creative writing when I went to Butler University in Indiana. So when I was 18, I moved eight hours away. I did not know anyone in the Midwest, but very quickly I knew a lot of people in the Midwest. And I majored in writing, and that's what I finished my degree in. And I have had writing jobs my entire life. So it's kind of funny that when I think of all the folks who had quote unquote more practical majors or majors where there seemed to be a more tangible job at the end of it. Um, almost none of them are doing something uh, now that applies to exactly what they studied, which I think is just uh, a proclamation for a liberal arts education where you learn to think critically more than you learn a specific subject matter because we're all going to jump around. But I have always been writing. And now I live in San Francisco. I've been here for eight years. I'm the global creative lead at Twitter. So I'm effectively a creative director for the business team. I have a monthly etiquette column in Architectural Digest. I host a reading series in San Francisco. I have been published in The New Yorker and Vice and Food and Wine Magazine. I'm a drag queen. So storytelling is just a part of my DNA and something I get to use in my professional life and my personal life and uh also just with anyone i pass on the sidewalk really can get sucked in unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> well i mean before we even go into any other like you know planned questions i have so many more on, on that so you've written a column on etiquette how is this like formal etiquette is this is this like going back to um you know like your knife should always be on the left and facing in or is this uh, a different form of etiquette so it's modern etiquette. I I grew up in a household with quite a bit of knives being in the correct situation. <laughs> I when I come home, my mom actually collects silverware, and so when I come home, she opens the the odd silverware drawer and starts quizzing me, and I have to and she pulls one out, and I'm like, that's a grapefruit spoon. She pulls out another. I'm like, that's a bonbon spoon. She pulls out another. I'm like, that is a child salad fork. And she's like, actually, it's an olive fork. You haven't been home in a while, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and you could see, not disappointment, but, you know, she wishes I was better. Um, and so I grew up with knowing how to 
politely go about any dish that could come across the table, how to um, go through any awkward conversation that someone could inject into Mm -hmm. a dinner party. But then we grow up and now there are all types of technology and social situations that our parents never could have prepared us for. You know, I got ghosted two weeks ago. Um, what do I do with that? What do you do if there is a really close friend that you've realized is actually pretty toxic and you want to turn that into an acquaintance relationship and not a friend relationship? Um, what do you do with text etiquette, with wedding invites for a couple that's been living together for 10 years and they're getting married at City Hall? You know, there's all these things that modernly are super common and we're dealing with all the time. And no matter how much etiquette you had growing up, it did not even touch those things. So that's what my column is about. It's called Polite Company. And I am your modern etiquette guide to figure out all the things about texting, uh, Zoom meetings, work from home, dating, those types of things. So if anyone wants to ask me a question, they can do so on the link in my Twitter bio. Um, Architectural Digest, Polite Company. But yeah, that's what it's about. I I think with technology, there have never been more ways to make a social transgression. (laughs) And we've never had, never been like more ill-equipped. Yeah, 100%. So let's, I'm going to put you in a scenario and I want to hear your advice here. And and we'll post the the link uh, below in the related resources so people can get to your column from there. But uh, let's say we're at a, a dinner party and it's non-formal, it's just casual friend dinner party. How okay. much does the etiquette change? And you mentioned that you are a drag queen. So I want to know, you know, does the etiquette change when you are, you and, and your drag friends are in drag at a dinner party or versus out of drag or just with other friends that, that necessarily aren't? Is there a big gap in the etiquette change there? Um, I... Etiquette is all about making people comfortable. And I think that's what gets lost because it's definitely used as a weapon, like socioeconomically for people to punch down against others who were maybe not brought up where etiquette was or could be a focus of the home. But the the DNA of etiquette is to teach someone a bunch of different skills so that no matter what environment they go into, they are fully prepared. And they feel comfortable and they're not offending anyone and they can have a good time. And so keeping that in mind with this idea of having a good time, not offending anyone, I would say the etiquette rules are totally on. I would say if you're surrounded by a lot of incredible drag performers, then you would definitely want to volunteer your pronouns, know what other people's pronouns are as well. I would say You're just going to want to sit and watch because you have a show going on. Um, My drag mom is Rock'em Soccer. She's on the most recent season of RuPaul's Drag Race. And sometimes when we're getting ready, I'll be like, oh, do you want me to record, like take a video of your your process? And she's like, no, as soon as that camera turns on, I hit Muppet mode and it's over. You know, we're going to be four hours late instead of just two. So, um, yeah, just sit back and enjoy the show, I would say. That's great. That's great. All right. So let's go. Let's go back. And bring a bottle of rosé. Of course. Well, that's etiquette for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Any situation, even, you know, breaking up with that friend that needs to be an acquaintance, you still got to bring the rosé. Uh-huh. It's always going to get you a little bit ahead. That's for sure. (laughs) So let's go back to Indiana, um, where you you went to Butler. 
um, where I reside. I, I love uh, Indianapolis and, and I, I hope that I never have to leave. Love it to death. Um, but you went to the Indiana, uh, the Indianapolis Museum of Art and you were an intern there for a short period of time. Tell me about that. I think that that's the that's your first real step outside of, of college. And I'm so curious on, you know, what drew you to that internship and then what you what you learned from it. It was an incredible internship. I love uh, the Indianapolis, Indianapolis Museum of Art. And at that time, it was free admission. And I think as a cultural institution, if your goal is truly to bring culture to the community, then being free is the way that you really show that you're true to that. And so I was so proud to work at a cultural institution that was free for people, that was expansive. I mean, that year we had opened up the 100 acres. Mm. So not only was it the this massive building filled with um, centuries worth of art, but we also had hundreds of acres of an art garden that was open to the public and botanical garden space uh, that was just enjoyable to be around all year too. And those Hoosiers, I mean, you know, they will tromp out in the middle of the snow to have a picnic and pretend Absolutely. like it's not too below. So I was really surprised and a bit concerned with how, how <laughs> around the year um, it was enjoyed by people. And at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, I began developing a skill set that is actually very similar to some of the technical writing that I have to do now. My project throughout the semester, which I pitched to them and was accepted, was basically Intern Joe Explains Art to You. And my whole idea is that art is something that is for absolutely everyone. And so many people get turned away because it feels too academic or they it can make them feel stupid it can make them feel like they don't read enough or know enough if they look at a piece of art and it's just purely not for them like they don't like it they feel like either they are dumb or art is dumb you know they and they find it repelling as opposed to the exciting thing where there are people who have the background, have the degrees, and they're looking at the same piece as you, and they also think it's stupid. And <laughs> they would love to have the exact same conversation. So I did a blog series where I interviewed curators, I interviewed museum staff, I interviewed artists, I interviewed just people at the museum talking about new exhibitions, and it was extremely approachable. So I got to talk to the lighting designer behind the museum and how she designs um, these at that time, we had Thornton Dial, who's a multimedia assemblage sculptor from the South. And so his pieces are huge. And they have, um, as she said, they cast shadows on themselves. Very difficult to light. And getting to see everything she thinks about. And it just gave all this depth to um, when you're in the museum and all the exciting things that are going on behind the scenes. And it's not dissimilar from technical writing. When I'm trying to explain a product for Twitter, when I'm trying to explain the auction-based bidding system for Twitter ads, it's complex. And it's something that could make people feel like they can't handle it. When I know my artists, my audience, so my team is focused on small businesses and new advertisers. So you could have a huge budget, but you've never advertised on Twitter before. These are folks who absolutely can advertise on Twitter. They can find extremely impactful ways to use Twitter to benefit their business, but they may not think that at first. And we need to write copy that lets them know they can absolutely handle it and Twitter is for them 
And it's not that different from me writing a blog article about some super abstract modern sculpture that like just looks like a pile of rocks and letting people know that they too can look at this and whatever they're thinking or whatever comes to mind is so valid and they are a part of the museum community too. I love that. What was your favorite piece of art to to explain? What was what was the story that you crafted that was uh, Oh my the most gosh. Fun? So I love installation pieces. Um they not that I need rewards for going to a museum. Museums are one of my absolute favorite places to be when I travel. It's museums and cafes, museums and cafes where I spend my time. And installation pieces um while yeah, I've seen the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. Seeing it in person is a different experience than seeing a picture of it online. But even if I had not seen it in person, I have seen so many images of the Mona Lisa. So I still get some degree of the impression as to that piece of art. Whereas installation pieces, where it's something that you walk inside, they have sound, they have smells. Um, there is a 360 degree feeling that your the art is providing and you have to be inside of it to really experience all of it and so those are the ones where when i go to a museum i feel like i'm getting the most reward for going to a museum because uh they can't possibly can be consumed just from an online perspective and there was this one piece by oh gosh her last name starts with an s julie um I'm not remembering right now, um, but it was an installation of speakers overhead, and you would basically navigate the piece by just walking under it. And she interviewed around 50 people who she had speaking to a microphone as if they were whispering into the ear of someone they care about. Mm. So it's very soft. It's a very soothing exhibition. And it's just this big room with all of these speakers hanging overhead. And you navigate it by walking under certain ones. And some were a little louder, some were very quiet. You could just barely catch every single little bit that someone was saying. And it felt at first really creepy and scary, like it sounds like a haunted room. But then when you would pause under a speaker, you would hear someone talking about how much they loved you. And so it was such a cool experience from being one room away and hearing these odd noises that kind of draw you in and kind of creep you out and um, then actually spending time in it and finding that speaker that happened to say something very sweet at the exact moment you walked under it and everybody in the room is getting a different experience because they're under different speakers at different times so i loved that exhibition and installation art is definitely what i'm drawn to the most well that that, that is great because we um I don't think that I would be drawn to installation art. I just, I, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of take a peek and you you walk away and you go look at all the paintings that people tell you to, to look at, yeah. the ones that you have to see. So that's, uh, you're going to give me a new way to, to do some museums here. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it isn't pretty. Um, and I think that that's what people come into the museum thinking is that they're just going to like, I will look at 30 pretty things and then I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> and so um, it can be something that is unexpected, but whenever you are uh, engaging with a cultural institution, if they are at their best, they are putting things you did not expect or you wouldn't have found yourself right in front of you and making them palpable, 
palpable so that you can really get something out of it. So I would absolutely encourage anyone find that like ugly ass looking weird installation <laughs> thing the next time you go and just get a coffee in the museum cafe and then give it a few minutes. And if you still hate it, that is awesome. Now you have a, a formed uh, artistic opinion and you can loudly complain at your next dinner party. <laughs> With proper etiquette. With proper etiquette. Make sure the artist isn't there. Um, yeah. Okay. So from, from internship, we're, we're diving into the career now, right? You, you went to Slingshot. Um, what did you, what did you do there? And, and then after Slingshot, it sort of pun intended slingshotted you over to San Francisco. So I'm, I'm curious how, uh, how that happened. Yeah. So I slingshot was my first full-time job outside of college and slingshot was in a search engine optimization firm. And I was an SEO editor. So I wrote four to six blog articles a day as a mommy blogger. So we realized that um, we had clients such as Sears, we had Blue Nile, we had Tanga, which a lot of their keywords are things like treadmill, uh, coupons, discounts, um, front-loading washing machine, workbench was a big one for some reason. Um, And so when we were creating brand new content that these keywords could be gracefully hidden inside of, um, a lot of them were lifestyle content, uh, lifestyle topics, if you're doing things like birdhouse and treadmill and elliptical. And so we got to a point where we were publishing, so Sears was one of our biggest clients, we were publishing so many lifestyle-focused articles, we needed dedicated mommy bloggers. And for whatever reason, uh, the managing team looked at me and said, ah, oh, yes, this 22-year-old uh, gay male is that's our mommy blogger um, so for maternal. sure. It's so maternal, very embarrassing and confusing for me when there's actual moms on the team uh, <laughs> who I'm being picked over um, or something like that. I don't really know, but that was a really wonderful job for me because one, it was a writing job outside of my first one out of college was a writing job. My degree was in writing and I think that was definitely a vote of confidence that I really needed as a new grad to know that I had, uh, this was something I could spend my entire life doing because I was going to do it anyway. So it was good (laughs) to have it work out quickly. And then I was at Slingshot for a year. So four to six blog articles a day. I mean, I made hundreds, hundreds of pieces of content. And that was so valuable. And the content was not, great. It was definitely quantity over quality. But at that stage of my career, and by that I mean first stage, it was just so valuable to do a whole lot of writing. Um, And I love Indianapolis as well. And I hit that place after being there for five years. I knew it was time for something new. And I wanted to leave exactly when I loved Indianapolis the most. Um, So I started thinking about California. I had lived in the South. I lived in the Midwest. And I wanted something entirely new. And California is definitely a place where when people say it, you can hear like there's like a gold lining to it. You know, it's got great PR. It seems like a land of promise, that type of thing. And Slingshot had been a startup and I knew there were a lot of startups out there and I didn't want to drive a car anymore. And I wanted, I'd only lived in moderate cities. So I thought it would be interesting to live in a progressive place. Um, you know, I love recycling. <laughs> There's just some, <laughs> um, some all like very medium strength reasons I wanted to live in San Francisco. Um, but enough when I was 22 that it totally made sense. 
And then I got fired from Slingshot. And that was like, oh, okay. Well, that was the last thing. Um, I had already been, I was a terrible employee at that point. I'd already been interviewing for other jobs. I would like leave at my lunch break and say, go into lunch and then do two interviews in my car and then come back and eat lunch at my desk. Um, and so <laughs> I was pretty obviously checked out. And then um, luckily, so I, I got fired from Slingshot. And then luckily a week later, I got an offer for a job in San Francisco. So I had, I was already far enough along and I had already moved out of my Indianapolis apartment, put my um, Salvation Army armchair on the street and um, gone back to Tennessee for a week uh, to just like reorganize my stuff, put some things in storage. And I had already bought the plane ticket. So I was coming to San Francisco anyway. And then I was so lucky to actually have a job get accepted right before um, which it didn't bother me as much, but I know that it made my parents much more relieved to know that I actually had a job when I landed. So I landed in the city on a Thursday and slept on a friend's, a friend of a friend's friend's couch, which also <laughs> means a stranger, a stranger. Let me sleep on their couch. Uh, apartments are notoriously difficult to find in San Francisco. So you pretty much can't get one unless you are in the city. So you kind of need a, a, a place to crash at least so you can do the walkthroughs in person. Um, and then I started my job and this was at a mommy, it was like Groupon for moms. So I kept my, um, my career as a fake internet mom going. Um, and I was writing product descriptions as a mother for things like Brazilian blowouts and sugar waxing and organic baby toys. Um, and then five weeks in, they laid off half the company, oh. including myself. So I had gotten exactly two paychecks, which basically paid for my move and then my Ikea bedroom set. So now I was in San Francisco with no job and even less money than when I had moved <laughs> than before. So I, I wasn't done with this city yet. I just didn't feel like I had really had my shot or if I hadn't taken my shot I definitely hadn't lost so I just started going to networking events and telling people I was a consultant and an entrepreneur <laughs> entrepreneur 23 <laughs> year old entrepreneur well, yeah so which now like looking back in San Francisco I was not nearly as off as I thought I was being that's definitely something people love to say about themselves when it just means that they're unemployed in the city um <laughs> But I designed my own business cards. I had my own website and my name. So I have a very uncommon last name, which is really wonderful for SEO. My name, my Twitter handle, my Instagram handle, my website, they are all the same. Um, it's just my name, Joe Wadlington. And that name has had a red squiggly underline in every program since I was born. So I don't really think anything of it when I was designing my business cards on Illustrator and printing them out at Kinko's um, until I was on the bus to a networking event. And I realized I had uh, 80 business cards in, on which my last name was misspelled, which means that my Twitter handle was misspelled. My email was misspelled. My website was misspelled. <laughs> like no one would be able to do this and get into contact with me. They were useless. And I'd spent money I did not have on those 80 business cards. I was already on the bus this thing 
I'm just sweating profusely. And I think I, I'm going to figure this out. And I had a Sharpie in my pocket. And so when I was networking, I would hand my card to someone and I would do a little carrot editing sign and add the in that I lost, that I lost from the middle of my name and say, I'm an editor and hand them my business card. <laughs> Improvise like over improvised creativity and it stood out people remembered it um uh it made it easy to get a conversation going um a lot of networking conversations can be really stiff at first especially if you're at um a networking event where it feels like a lot of people are looking for work and not a lot of people have work to give um and this was pretty close after you know this is 2012 so the economy was definitely still recovering um and it was definitely unbalanced, but I, I directly found work through that networking event um, and took on freelance clients. And uh, eight years later, I am, I've been at Twitter for five years now. I am the global creative lead and I, I love my job. It's extremely flexible and uses a lot of my different skill sets, um, but my business cards are spelled correctly now. <laughs> Thankfully, they, they finally let you have the end to buy a yeah finally. I, I had to earn it i had to earn it and that's fair and there's a lot of letters in my name so it takes a while to earn <laughs> sure okay so you got there you did some some freelance in there and you said you got some work you you um you went to these networking events it was great is this a is this a standard case of it's all who you know is that how you got to to twitter or you know what what was the story that got you to i mean one of the largest and most iconic companies right now yeah, I, that word is used quite a bit, and especially, or that phrase of, it's who you know. And I do think that is good networking advice, but that is not the only way to find a job. And coming into San Francisco, there are so many folks who went to Stanford, and they are so connected. And these people are not necessarily smarter than you. They are not necessarily more talented than you. And there's definitely some issues with hiring pipelines, where you see tech companies where the founders who went to Stanford or Harvard Business School or MIT are only hiring people who also went to Stanford and Harvard Business School and MIT. And it's not because those places necessarily, it's not because those places have the only good grads, obviously. It's because they're being lazy in their hiring pipeline and they're not looking behind the people who they can just immediately grab. So that can also be advice that really scares people because if I looked around at anyone I knew, I didn't know anyone who worked at Google or Twitter. I didn't know anyone who um, went to an Ivy League school. Um, I, I had a graduating class of about 650 people, and I think only 10 of us went out of state for college. So I didn't come from a place that really spread wide or had extremely ambitious thing, um, ideas in the industry. I wanted to be ambitious. Certainly ambition uh, of all types was represented there, but not in a way where I had someone I could call up and I could just skate in for an interview. But I was meeting people at these networking events and I was having a, um, I was being myself and sticking out and I was meeting their friends and I was meeting their friends and through networks of savers and through not being afraid to ask um, and having a distillation of what I was looking for. I was a writer. I was looking for writing jobs on marketing teams. And a lot of new grads, they will say, oh, I'll do anything. They're like, oh, I'm interested in design. I'm interested in business development. I'm interested in sales. And I think that's wonderful. 
But when you go to an event or when you're talking to a specific person, you need to give them the one thing you're looking for, because that's going to set off the synapses in their head to think, oh, you want to talk to people who are sales. I have a friend who is a sales manager. Let me connect the two of you. So Mm -hmm. by the time I applied to Twitter, um, I did have a recommendation. I had, I had met someone in the park that week who said he worked at Twitter and <laughs> he was a friend of an ex of mine who was in town and we were hanging out and he's like, Oh, can we um, hang out with my friend Jared? Um, or he's also in the park and Jared came over and sat on her blanket and Jared worked at Twitter. And there was a job at Twitter I had been looking at just that week that I was so nervous. I thought I can never work at Twitter. I don't have the background um how i was um not even going to apply um and then i met jared and he's like oh i work there i'll refer you and just having that um knowing that i was getting a a referral and the referral is not you know he didn't know me he couldn't write some glowing recommendation (laughs) all it did is just make it so that there's like a little, you know, employee check sticker. He, w- I still had to write a cover letter. I still had to do all these things um, and definitely like got it out of my, my own talent. But even just having that encouraged me so much to like finish the application. And so, yes, it is who you know, but it's also who you could meet and who your friends know. And it doesn't have to be about pedigree or your background, but rather about who you're going to meet and who you're going to find as opposed to who you were brought up with. Mm. That's great. That's, I mean, that's great advice. We usually don't do advice segments, but I think we're helping people here left and right. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'm advice etiquette columnist. I can't help myself. Absolutely. Well, Joe, as we, as we wrap up the show, I like to ask two questions uh, to all of our guests. And, and the first one, and I feel like you're going to have to pull from a wealth of knowledge on, on this one, but what's a seemingly unrelated experience that's helped you the most in your career? <laughs> a seemingly unrelated experience that has helped me the most in my career. So when I went to Butler University and majored in creative writing, and it was a critique-based program. So I spent four years in rooms of 10 to 15 people having my writing ripped apart while I sat there silently. <laughs> uh, traditional critique format means that the, the person who submitted work sits silently and takes notes. Um, and then uh, the, everyone who is critiquing speaks as if they are not in the room. And then at the end, you have you know, 10, 15 minutes to ask clarifying questions. You are not supposed to spend that time defending your work <laughs> and telling people, no, you just didn't get it. Um, and that made me so ready to receive critique. One of my biggest points of pride, and, prob- and, and pride is the right word because I could also be bruised here pretty <laughs> easily, is I think I am very good at receiving critique. I think I'm very good at helping people uh, give better critique based on the questions that I ask. And my role as the only creative, full-time creative person on my team and a manager of other creative people. Um, I've also consistently throughout my career been a creative person who is working with non-creative people. So I've worked with, and not that these people do not create, of course, um, but in terms of our roles, I was doing design, I was creating copy, I was uh, creating brand strategy, and these folks were engineers, performance marketers, sales folks, and so on. Mm. 
a lot of people um, with writing, because it's something everybody writes and everybody reads, people feel really comfortable giving you critique from a place of expertise when they maybe do not have a level of expertise. Whereas if someone puts up a finance plan or some an engineer puts up a software plan, people are not going to critique it in the same way because they don't feel like they can because they're not a financial analyst or because they uh, don't have skill in a different development language. But everybody reads and everybody writes. So people who will happily jump on, and it's the same with design because everybody sees design and uh, interacts with packaging often. Sure. They are going to jump in and they are going to give you critique and they are excited. People love giving feedback on certain things. So me having stuff that uh, ripped apart for years and when I was much more sensitive and I was writing things that were so close to my heart made it so I can hear feedback and actually help the person get to what they really want to say. And I hear it from a, a really even place. And my uh, crit sessions when I present a really big project um, are the, the structure that I've created over years and years of being able to make uh, help everyone feel heard and come away with really actionable things that I can do to strengthen the project um, are one of the biggest points of pride in my professional tool belt. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. So last question, what's the most authentic thing that's happened to you this week? <laughs> so I spoke at social media week and I am quarantined and work from home. I have two roommates who are also quarantined and work from home. Um, the Wi-Fi that we have was built for uh, three people to maybe be watching Netflix, maybe be sending texts or playing Animal Crossing. It's not built for three people to be um, giving presentations to thousands of people at Social Media Week. <laughs> and so um, we did a tech run through and everything was so seamless and wonderful. And then two minutes before my presentation went live, my slides stopped viewing um, and my video cut out. <laughs> so everybody's there. We can see the room is being virtually filled with all these people. They're having the little cute chats about like, um, I'm excited for this. It's so good. Um, I've been preparing for this for, for months. I applied to be part of Social Media Week and was accepted in December. So this is huge. And uh, there's no visual and no sound. I am just a headshot um, sitting there. And so uh, my other two roommates are also in the middle of things that are similar that are not that are similarly live. And I know they're in it. And I just got up and I knocked on their doors and I was like, this is what's happening for me. And they're like, ah, we, you know, in a very like deer in the head, like, look, they too are really in the middle of something important. <laughs> um, and so we just ran around the apartment and we unplugged anything that we did not, that we did not need the Wi-Fi for the moment. Um, and went back into our rooms and I worked with the social media week folks who were really incredible and ended up having to, upload my slides to a Dropbox account of someone who works at that company so that they could send it to someone else to screencast my slides. <laughs> um, we, we got very scrappy. But that moment of us just looking at each other and it being like, there's no one to be mad at here. There's no one like, how dare you get on a call while I'm also on a call or how dare you be checking email? You know, we can't ask each other to like turn off all of our phones and leave the house for four hours while I get my work done. And it was that nice thing where you see 
uh, people are really having a hard time, but we're all aware of what the root cause is and that we're all on the same team. Um, and so it was definitely one of those like, well, this sucks, but everyone around me is doing the right thing and we all care about each other and we are on the same team and I'll figure it out. And then, yep, at five o'clock that day, there were, I had one or two more beers than normal. Um, <laughs> but other than that, like it was, a, it was, it was smooth and it all worked out. And that was just a nice feeling of, um, you know, during COVID, everybody is extra stressed and mm -hmm. pulled extra tight. And these ways in which we can look at each other and just say, like, you know, if you realize someone is on the same team as you and you're trying to do the same thing, um, it's not them. It's just the situation. And so we just moved on and cracked a beer. And it was great. And got Very it authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, it was wonderful getting to know you um, in a very recorded way. Um, I really appreciate you being here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm not sure if you noticed, but Joe is a storyteller at his core. It was ingrained in him from childhood and has elevated him to where he's at today. If we truly think about the origin of marketing, storytelling is the foundation. So how important is storytelling in modern marketing? According to Chris Brogan, the creator of StoryLeader, it's paramount. Is that if things were working, then stories do the heavy lifting for you. And all you have to do is facilitate that story. The job of marketers is to develop and build the marketplace, which is the transactions that occur that deliver the product. And so to me, the story is the exciting part that gets us to the marketplace. And it's the minute after that, what do people do that shows whether or not you've done what you should have done before. A great story will inform the entirety of your marketing strategy. At the end of every show, we are showcasing the most important part of our show, you. We ask new questions every week, and we want your most authentic answers. We want them in any form, audio, video, Zanga, Friendster, MySpace Me. You can write it down. You can send us an illustration. We just want to highlight you. Email us at thetick at casted.us. Hit us up at Twitter at gocasted, or hit up our driftbot at casted.us slash thetick. This week, we wanted to know what you wanted to be when you grew up. And the answers were noble. Our producer, Holly Pels, wanted to be a nurse. Josh Mitchell reached for the stars and wanted to be an astronaut. And I always wanted to be a dinosaur. And it turns out that when they say you can be whatever you want when you grow up, it doesn't encompass a species change. If you'd like to hear more from Chris Brogan on the importance of stories and marketing, check out the Cashing In on Content Marketing podcast from Fractal. You can find it linked below in the related resources. A huge thank you to our guest, Joe Wadlington of Twitter, our producer, Holly Pels, our audio engineer, Tommy Nichols, and our designer, Byron Elliott. I'll catch you next week when we talk to Betsy Kaliba of Element 3. Until then, stay authentic.